This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Hello and welcome to another great show of Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Michelle Lux. My guest today is David Harkavy. He is a forensic accountant that focuses on economic damages issues. He's the director of Delta Consulting Group. Welcome and thank you, David, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Part of our show is the question, what do you wish you knew the first time that you were an expert witness? So there's a common saying amongst us damages experts, and that is damages flow from the legal claims at issue in a case. And that is uh, very true, of course. And what I would recommend any new damages expert or an inexperienced damages expert is to have the conversation with counsel very early on about the remedies that you are going to calculate and perform for the preparation of your expert report and which understand which remedies fall under which claims. Um, I recall the, the day before I was supposed to testify uh, in my second deposition, that counsel came into the conference room and sat down and says, we have a problem. Before he said anything else, he says, we have a problem. And I said, what? He said, you calculated an unjust enrichment amount and we do not have an unjust enrichment claim in the case. And I said, okay. And he said, well, uh, we need you to say at your deposition that we will put in, uh, we counsel, will put in a de- a, an unjust enrichment claim um, so that your unjust enrichment calculation can stay in the case. And here I am about to testify in deposition and I was really anxious. Uh, and here I am thinking, oh my God, we, we don't have an, a legal claim for the remedy that I put forward uh, because it was a breach of contract c- case. Uh, and at the time you couldn't put forward a, an unjust enrichment calculation under a breach of contract. So uh, my tip for both counsel and damages expert is to have that conversation early that if there's one claim or count in the case or multiple claims or counts to make sure that the damages and remedies that the expert is gonna put forward in his or her expert report is tied to the legal claims of the case. Typically, there are initial interviews to see if both of you are the right fit. Do you do those often or are there introductions by email? How do you prefer those? I don't have a preference one way or the other, um, as long as I get hired for the job, right? (laughs) So um, when it's a call out of the blue, um, it's usually the attorney is asking me about my credentials, right? And if I've ever testified in a similar case. Uh, Sometimes it's a referral from someone inside uh, Delta Consulting, the firm that I work for, or from an attorney that I know. And 
the expert already kind of knows who I am. They've read my CV and, or maybe they've worked with me before and they've, they'll say, you know, let's set up a video conference call and talk through some of the issues of the case, David. And I wanna see how you would respond uh, to these issues on damages. So, um, you know, I, I don't have a preference uh, but um, I prepare differently, right, for the different scenarios. So, for example, if it's a new lawyer relationship, uh, certainly I will be prepared to explain my 21 plus year experience as a litigation consultant and forensic accountant uh, and go through some of the cases that are relevant. Uh, sometimes in advance, I will ask for the complaint uh, or other publicly available information so that I can be a little bit up the learning curve and make the conversation more efficient for both of us. We are entering a more digital world. We would initially have phone interviews, but that seems to be transitioning to Zoom calls. Do you find this technology useful with those initial interviews? I think it's more useful for counsel to see the expert face-to-face, -face, uh, but now with the transition to video conference calls, it's certainly more acceptable. And I think counsel wants to see uh, and understand who this expert is, if the person is likable uh, or is teachable. So oftentimes lawyers will hire us damages experts on our ability to persuade a jury or judge or to see if this person has a, uh, a likable characteristic uh, and a personality that a jury will connect with. So I think that video, if, if, the, if the meeting cannot be in person because it's, let's say it's out of town or let's say there is concern due to COVID or some other reason, um, having that video call can be beneficial from the lawyer's perspective. As far as the damages expert, I, I don't, it, to me, it's, it doesn't matter if it's video or um, uh, over the phone call. Again, I, I'm if, certainly in the initial phases, I'm there to answer the lawyer's questions and make sure the lawyer understands who I am and my background, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, it, to me, it doesn't matter. The term Zoom court is being used and we are now seeing video depositions and testimonies. Have you done any of those yet? I have testified in deposition over Zoom and I've testified in an arbitration hearing over Zoom, but I have not testified at trial over Zoom. I, the, the challenge uh, over um, Zoom or video conference is that you don't get a sense to the facial expressions as much as if you were in person. And sometimes reading the other person who you're just meeting for the first time um, can be very helpful, right? So as a damages expert, I'm being cross-examined by somebody who I've never met with and understanding how they ask questions and learning their facial expressions and their tempo can be more difficult over video conferencing versus in person. So there's, there are some challenges. Um, 
certainly there's less anxiety when you are testifying via video conferencing in an arbitration hearing setting or a trial setting because you're in your own office or your own comfortable environment as opposed to being in a courtroom or a large conference room with a bunch of attorneys and your client. So um, certainly anxiety um, can have an impact on you, the quality of your testimony. And if you're testifying from your desk in your office, you're very comfortable. So it's a little bit more beneficial or easier for you as a testifying expert. Do attorneys prepare you for these video testimonies? You won't necessarily be able to read the room or you know, see the jurors. I'm just curious if there are you know, conversations in place about best practices. Sure, I, I think there is a little bit of a difference, um, but I think at the end of the day, um, the attorneys wanna make sure you're prepared and they'll spend as much time as necessary over video conferencing uh, to make sure that you are prepared for your deposition or trial testimony. Uh, so I, you know, as far as the content of the time, it's, I find it to be the same for the preparation of the testimony. I, I didn't find that much of a difference. I, so when I testified in deposition, I prepared with counsel the day before. She is in New Jersey and I'm here in the Chicago area. So neither one of us had to travel. So that saved us at least a day of travel time and it, it was more convenient. And I feel like we were able to get through the content of my opinions and what to expect for the deposition the next day as well as if we were meeting in person. So in that sense, I really don't feel like there was much of a difference. And in fact, because we didn't have to, neither one of us had to travel, I think it really benefited all of us, including the client for not having to pay for travel time. Sure. So, so you know, and, and then I testified the next day via video conference. And again, I did not have to travel. I would have had to travel to the East Coast for that deposition. So again, I feel like uh, the parties save money uh, and I found it to be as, um, as viable uh, as if I was to testify in deposition in person. It'll be interesting to see if in the next five to 10 years, if that's going to be a common occurrence, just because it does save money. Definitely agree that this will become more of a common occurrence in cases where money is, is when money is an issue, where money is no issue and there's a lot at stake I think there will be still travel uh, to the depositions and the depositions in person. Yes, you, you can't replace the human interaction, right? Well, another question I have is, how do you organize for your cases? Oftentimes these cases extend for you know, many months into years. What systems do you have in place to keep that information fresh? You know, So for instance, if you're working on, let's say 20 cases and you have one that pops up that you haven't touched on, you know, in over six months, how do you jump right back in? 
That's a good question. And that often happens with litigation cases. The case goes into hibernation after a damages expert is submitted. And there's very little, if anything, going on uh, after expert discovery is going, after expert discovery ends. And for the expert, there's very little uh, work to do. So um, oftentimes I uh, have notes that I know will not be discoverable because in federal court, for example, uh, my notes and drafts are not discoverable under expert discovery rules. So I will uh, keep track of those notes, retain those notes, and um, those are notes that I've taken uh, and, and we'll focus on some of the points where are, that are not disclosed in my expert report so that I, there might be certain areas that, um, uh, that we've, my team and I have performed work and it didn't go into my expert report, but we still want to keep it because if it goes to trial, then that information and work product will be helpful for me to prepare for trial. Um, and we keep it that information in a separate folder uh, on our network so that um, we know that work product and information is not uh, a main um, uh, portion of my expert report. So we'll keep that um, work product separate. Um, sometimes what I will do is um, for all the footnotes for my expert report, I will have all of those documents stored electronically in a separate folder so that when we get closer to trial, I will have all of those electronic files organized in, an, in a way where I can just quickly go through them. Now, if my report has, let's say, 100 footnotes and 50 of those 100 footnotes are cited to discovery. I will literally um, have footnotes, one, two, 10, 100, whatever it is, um, readily accessible to me so I can click on the, um, the folder with this information and find those pieces of evidence. Uh, that's another excellent way to keep track of information that gets sort of stale in your mind and uh, before trial, quickly pick it up and get back up to speed. As an expert witness, you definitely have to be a super organizer. And that's a lot of footnotes. Well, some expert reports are in the hundreds of footnotes. And um, I've been doing this for so many years that I know the best when I'm writing an expert report and I'm relying on a source document that I'm gonna start putting those documents in a folder or subfolders so that I can easily get to it later on. And that, let's say I submit an expert report, the following week, I might have one of my staff members go through the expert report and make sure that all of my footnotes sources have been uploaded to this folder. For, um, for, my, for my footnotes so that if in six months or a year and a half, we get to trial, we have all of the sources that I relied upon for my expert report 
readily available and it's there. Sometimes attorneys will suggest new language in expert reports, and, and there is some back and forth, but have you ever had an attorney not like the tone of your expert reports, or have they asked to see the sample writing ahead of time? Yes, that's a good question. I often create uh, an outline for counsel as I begin to draft my expert report, as long as that is not discoverable so that counsel will know sort of the flow of topics for my expert report. I will um, share on a timely basis drafts of my expert report to counsel um, so that there's no surprises leading up to the expert report due date. There's always going to be last minute changes to an expert report, meaning like the days leading up to it, um, you know, first chair counsel will all of a sudden read your report and give feedback on the items in your report. And oftentimes there is sort of a sort of pushback between counsel and myself uh, as to the language that's in my report. Prospective counsel will ask me, for a redacted version of an expert report. Uh, and I do have some of those available so that if an attorney calls me up and said, asks me questions and say, you know what, David, I really like uh, your experience and credentials. Do you have any lost profits uh, reports that you can share with me? And of course, for privilege reasons, I cannot give one of my old expert reports because usually they're destroyed at the end of a case uh, via, you know, as a result of the of a protective order in place. So I've redacted some of my expert reports to remove confidential information and party names, et cetera, so that if a, a prospective attorney wants to see my writing style, I have one of those reports for him or her. Yes, all very smart, especially if you were asked that question on the stand. While we are wrapping up our time, do you have any last tips for our listeners or suggestions about being an expert witness? I could list many. I would say one item is that when hiring an expert, it's a two-way street based on trust. Certainly the lawyers trust the expert to perform the work at their direction and with objectivity and integrity. Also, the expert trusts the lawyers to provide the expert with um, sufficient relevant in information for the expert to perform a reliable and supportable damages calculation and protect the expert when opposing counsel goes after the expert. Um, for me, I have many more years left in this profession, and I do not want to be excluded for any reason. Uh, thankfully, I have not been excluded uh, for any reason, and I want that to remain the case. So when I have one of the initial calls with counsel, I explain that, yeah, you're hiring me because you trust me, but I'm going with you and accepting your uh, opportunity uh, because I trust you as well. 
It seems like expert witnesses are routinely interviewing for new jobs. Well, that's true. Um, I think uh, most of us experts, we do get calls and we do go through those interviews with prospective counsel uh, and we explain our work um, strategy or the way we perform our work so that uh, they understand us. Because the last thing you want to do, right, is to kind of get into a situation where counsel has certain expectations that you cannot meet. Um, and I've been involved in those situations where the attorneys try to, you know, early on in a case, like, you know what, David, we're not thinking this, we're actually thinking over here. And I'm like, well, then you need to provide the evidence to support that. In fact, one of my cases where I testified at trial um, on damages kind of fell apart. And real quickly, I'll explain. So um, the attorneys wanted me to put forward a very large lost profits opinion. Uh, and I explained, so tell me a little bit about the facts that you have regarding causation. And they explained to me, well, we've got a fact witness for the plaintiff that's going to testify on causation factors. I said, okay, um, tell me a little bit about that. So the lawyers explain that to me. We get to trial and the day before I testify on lost profits, the plaintiff's fact witness melted down at trial and was not adequately able to support causation. Meaning that it wasn't the defendant's actions that caused the lost profits, it was other factors. So even before I testified, counsel withdrew my lost profits opinions and I testified only on a few small other components of my damages opinions. But I can tell you the client and the judge was very upset with our team because they were expecting a very large lost profits damages opinion to be at trial. And it wasn't there because we didn't have sufficient evidence on causation. And that was a tough pill to swallow uh, for all of us because I really felt we were all in that sort of together um, and we just didn't meet the criteria. So therefore my damages opinions never even were um, provided or presented at trial. It's hard, especially when you put so much time into it. <laughs> yes, I would say about 80 to 90% of my time in that case was relating to the uh, lost profits calculation. Well, David, I really appreciate your time and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Michelle. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 